Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are migrants from south of the border taking advantage of the U.S. asylum program? The Trump administration says yes, and recently U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced a drastic deterrent. Anyone crossing the border will be prosecuted, even those seeking asylum. Coming up, we'll talk about how this directive affects asylum seekers and hear whether the program needs to be strengthened. What's your take? You can join the conversation. That's just ahead. We'll also look at immigration policies since President Trump took office. Rafael Bernal is a reporter for The Hill Latino, and he's going to join us in a little bit. But first, the immigration debate in the U.S. has lo- has been divisive long before Donald Trump took office. Often discussion centers around who should be permitted to live here illegally, um, rather live, live here legally, and the processes that are in place. Now, is it that simple? Moreover, what does history tell us about how immigration policy has been shaped in our country? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome our first guest to the show. Dr. Jason Chang, Associate Professor of History and Asian American Studies at UConn. He teaches a course called Immigrants and the Shaping of American History. Dr. Chang, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we wanted to start off our segment uh, because there's been so much uh, in the news uh, with uh, rhetoric coming from uh, many different parties about uh the people who are trying to come to our country. Um, Recently, there were comments uh, that White House Chief of Staff John Kelly made to NPR about Central American uh, immigrants, and it went viral. We wanted to play that clip. But they're also not people that would easily assimilate into the United States, into our modern society. Uh, They're uh, overwhelmingly rural people. Uh, In the countries they come from, fourth, fifth, sixth grade educations are kind of the norm. Um, they don't speak English, obviously. That's a big thing. They don't speak English. They don't integrate well. They don't have skills. So again, he's talking about people coming up from Central America uh, who want to live here, uh, some of them asylum seekers. Uh, as you uh, can tell, that, that mm-hmm. comment hit a nerve for some. Genealog- genealogists quickly discovered that Kelly's own great-grandfather was illiterate. He only spoke Italian, and he wasn't even a citizen. What was your mm-hmm. reaction when you heard that? Well, uh, the the claims of, of unassimilability are very old. This is a, this is a, a card that's been played numerous times in order to vilify and and demonize uh, populations that uh, that some groups uh, want to expel, exclude, uh, or um, uh, uh, block from en- entering the United States. It almost cements that us versus them mentality. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. Uh, but it, it's it's a rhetorical strategy it designed to uh, to make uh, other kinds of policy solutions more appropriate. If there, if uh, if politicians are able to make uh, make a population seem like their presence will be bad for the country, then it's easier to uh, to. Um, to enact laws and legislation that target them and expel them. So the first part is a sort of rhetorical strategy, and then there's a political uh, move to make uh, to make policy uh, match that. 
So let's talk about uh, when certain uh, laws and rules came to be uh, with the founding of our nation. I know since you know, 1620, most of us have ancestors who came uh, from somewhere else. And so I, w- mm-hmm. I was curious if you could uh, break it down for us in terms of when we started to first see uh, these restrictions for certain people who should not be allowed to come. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, restrictions even started in the colonial period. Uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, uh, worried about the uh, the assimilation of uh, of Germans in in the British colonies and and decried their inability to uh, to speak English. Uh, but it wasn't until uh, 1790 that uh, in the New Republic that they actually passed the first naturalization law that said which foreigners can become citizens. And uh, basically, uh, the law was the first uh, to explain that uh, white landowning men are allowed to naturalize. Um, and uh, and that, that sort of set the stage uh, because what immigration policy does is it kind of identifies who the ideal citizen is uh, or who, who the ideal citizen is imagined to be. And, um, and, and so... Um, while that sets the bar for naturalization, we, the United States government didn't start uh, counting immigrants, keeping track of them, until 1820. Um, the first law to ban uh, the entry of, of a group was the Chinese Exclusion Acts in 1882. Uh, there was a prior legislation, 1875, which banned Chinese laborers and Chinese prostitutes because there were... The, the assumption was that all Chinese were coolies, these uh, cheap laborers, and all Chinese women were prostitutes. So that one was more an occupational ban that attempt to apply to all Chinese. But um, the racial ban didn't, uh, uh, wasn't passed until 1882. We talk a little bit more about so you. We needed uh, certain workers to do the mm-hmm. work, right? Build the yep. railroads, exactly. uh, mine the gold. Uh, but at the same time, you have this xenophobic uh, mentality that's uh, sprung up. I mean, can you explain a little <laughs> bit more about where that came from? Oh yeah. Um, well, so there's always a tension in immigration policy between economic development and national identity, and these two concepts have always been in in tension. Um, the, these competing objectives uh, usually find resolution in uh, the persecution, expulsion, uh, and exclusion of different white populations. Um, and uh, immigration policy helps to dictate uh, who can work and who can profit from that work. Uh, so if, uh, if groups are deemed um, unassimilable, they may be allowed to work but not allowed to prosper. Uh, and that's... Um, uh, in some senses, uh, profits are protected through immigration policy by carving up populations as disposable labor, non-citizen uh, uh, laborers. Uh, and so in, um, in, in, the, 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 um, in the way that, that nativism uh, helps to, uh, it, uh, let me rephrase that, uh, nativism is a uh, helps to exp- uh, helps to explain um, some economic anxieties, right? Because I think there's two kinds of politics around immigration restriction. On the one hand, there's the uh, 
the um, the targets of the res- the of the policy. Um, uh, how are how are these immigrants being portrayed? But then there's also kind of a secondary layer, which is what what I kind of think of as uh, uh, shareholder stakes. And so for some people, it's it's that when they see a population being targeted, uh, they say, not in my name, mm. right? Uh, but then there's other folks who say, this is speaking to my core values. This is how I see the nation. Um, and so, um, but ultimately those kinds of, um, those kinds of uh, immigration policies don't end up having the economic benefit that, that that exclusion is supposed to solve, right? I'm talking with Jason Chang. He's an associate professor of history and Asian American studies at UConn today as we look at the history of our immigration system and the question of when uh, immigration really became legal versus Mm -hmm. illegal. You mentioned some of the groups that were seen as unassimilable would be uh, the Chinese, but what about Mm -hmm. some other groups around uh, the late 1800s? Well, even, um, uh, even Irish uh, immigrants were seen as unassimilable. They were Catholic, um, and they were uh, uh, they were already marginalized British subjects. Uh, and so, in the United States, they maintained a similar status. Um, but they served a, an important function in the United States. They helped settle new territory. They fulfilled laboring occupations uh, in cities. Um, and um, there were other groups that were um, uh, also had ethnic persecution, like uh, Italians. Uh, however, uh, Irish and Italians never uh, were prevented from going to places that said whites only, right? So while there is ethnic persecution, the racial bar for those immigrants was, was quite different, say, than uh, from Filipinos who, uh, who entered and then uh, were um, were uh, uh, also excluded uh, socially, uh, according to uh, to racial laws. Yeah. So there were uh, racially based immigration policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did that begin to change? Uh, change how? In terms of what was it considered acceptable instead of uh, you know um, maligning certain groups. Uh, so right. through the '60s, uh, what did we see? Oh, change? I see. Okay. Yeah. So well, I mean, the United States has been. It, its immigration policy has been organized around the promotion, creation, and protection of a white nation, and that has been the uh, the the central legal structure uh, up until the 1960s. And uh, 1965, uh, we have the Hart Seller Act, which uh, w- responded to. Uh, the Cold War environment and uh, and to um, intense uh, pressure from internationally and domestically to respond to these unfair, uh, unjust, and um, and racially uh, driven um, immigration laws. And so that what it what that law did was it reversed uh, the national uh, quota system. And uh, and put in place a merit-based system, which inaugurated a, a one a new vision of the nation who was deemed uh, allowable, admissible in into the the country, uh, but then also uh, tried to um, 
changed the image of the United States during the Cold War to be a more open, capacious, and and um, and, and globally minded country. So, Jason, how did we see uh, the flow of immigrants coming to this country change with that the act in '65? Yeah, so the the law was originally intended to uh, to to capture and welcome in Eastern European immigrants, and um, because immigration is driven by push and pull forces globally uh, driven, the new rules ended up capturing uh, ended up allowing and capturing different populations than them were intended. Uh, so. The major push factors in the 60s and 70s were uh, economic development and warfare. And so what we see after 1965 is the flow of immigrants to the United States comes from places where the U.S. sent investment capital and bombs. So we have refugees and, uh, and other kinds of, um, uh, of, of workers uh, based on those different kinds of foreign policies. Well, we were talking about uh, the rhetoric that's used uh, to again describe a certain group of people. Uh, it's been ha- it's been happening many times in yeah. our, our nation's history. But when you look at the rhetoric today, what similarities do you see? I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, mirroring, right? So the um, uh, one is, one thing that that happens uh, pretty regularly in U.S. history is debates over borders and enforcement and whether, uh, whether or not uh, um, uh, th- that exclusions, uh, one, are possible are, um, and if, if they're beneficial. Um, and they've, uh, uh, border enforcement is a recurring theme. There's also um, uh, the idea that um, that uh, that there are good immigrants and bad immigrants, and there uh, there's a, a need to sort of sift through them and have different protocols or vetting processes for uh, for finding out who the good ones are. Um, and um, uh, another one is another thing that I I, I notice um, is that there's um, there's also um, a way that uh, that that citizen populate the uh, the, um, the citizenry of the United States looks at immigrants in similar fashion. So while you have, uh, say, a second generation immigrant family, may you know think that they they may enter in. Uh, on, in certain conditions, but then uh, not see that those conditions reflected in current immigration, uh, pop, currently immigrating populations. So this idea that immigrants after a generation or two close the door behind them. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. What What is it about just a couple of generations that changes mm-hmm. uh, someone's viewpoint and where they don't see maybe there's some similarities in their mm-hmm. families uh, coming to this country to current uh, mm-hmm. immigrants, refugees trying to enter today? Yeah. You know, I think the, the, I, the, the notion of assimilation is a little, um, it is a little confusing um, because 
uh, if you if we look at the idea of assimilation or how it's been um, how it's been discussed, um, it it doesn't reflect the experiences of people of color because only certain people have been allowed to assimilate. Uh, you know, and for, in Asian American studies, we often talk about the perpetual foreigner, right? That Asian American populations are always thought to uh, be foreign. Uh, you know, people remark on how well I speak English. Uh, I've been here for four, my family's been here four generations. Uh, so, um, uh, so that idea is, is, it kind of helps to reveal that, um, that, it, that the promise of assimilation is acceptance. But in uh, a racially uh, organized polity, then uh, the, it often uh, just rings hollow, right? The, that that acceptance will come with cultural change, and one of the it, uh, I think a closer marker of assimilation is whether or not you adopt the uh, the antagonism towards immigrants or anti-black attitudes, and that those that those are ways that foreigners can. Uh, can mitigate the way that they're described or portrayed as um, as foreign. If you adopt anti-black attitudes or if you uh, are anti-immigrant, that may help to uh, to seal your uh, give credentials of your national identity as an American. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know that could explain partially like the um, uh, reason why some Latinos uh, support the Trump administration. Right, um, as a way of expressing their own Americanness, uh, even as it is detrimental to uh, uh, to other Latinos. As we look at the continuing debate in Washington and in states about who should be allowed to come to this country, I mentioned you teach this course at UConn, Immigrants mm-hmm. and the Shaping of American History. What are the questions your students have when they look at this current rhetoric and uh, with mm-hmm. some of uh, you know the patterns that remain in how we talk about different groups of people? Mm. You know, one of the beginning exercises I do with my classes, I show them uh, clips of presidential debates on immigration policy. And uh, we start with the current day and we work backwards. And, uh, and we go all the way until uh, 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 um, the 1970s. And what's fascinating for them is to see the way that, uh, that the different parties have shifted their immigration uh, rhetoric over time. And um, and when we get to the 70s, what we see is that the debate is, is much more closely aligned by both parties to a, 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 a centrist position that, both, that today both parties have, have evacuated. Uh, and so um, uh, it, it helps to, uh, to, to bring a kind of awareness of how, how uh, one, the political party system, our, our party system has helped to shape what kinds of policy reforms remain on the agenda and how those, um, how those agendas uh, get communicated to the public. 
And coming up, we're going to be talking about uh, current current policy changes within our immigration system. But I want to thank Dr. Jason Chang, Associate Professor of History and Asian American Studies at UConn, for joining us for some perspective on our past. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to check in with a reporter from The Hill Latino on immigration policy since President Trump took office, including recent changes that will impact potential asylum seekers. Now, immigration reform has been a hot-button issue over several presidencies. What reforms do you want to see? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just got some history on the way the U.S. immigration policies have evolved. Now, President Trump has made it clear immigration reform is one of his priorities. But from the time he ran for president, the way Mr. Trump talks about immigrants has led to anger. Most recently, he characterized people being removed from the country as animals, later clarifying he only meant to label lit members of the MS-13 gang. Now, what what policies have changed under the Trump administration? And can the nation's immigration system truly be reformed? It's been a question uh, for a few decades now. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. On the phone with us now is Rafael Bernal, reporter for The Hill Latino. Rafael, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. There's a lot to talk about and not much time, but for just a recap for us, uh, um, since uh, Trump, Mr. Trump, uh, when he was a candidate for president and now president, he's mentioned he's wanted to crack down on illegal immigration. So um, as we've seen him now in the last uh, year and a half, uh, what can we talk about in terms of how enforcement policy has changed under his administration? Well, I mean, the, the top story everybody knows about is DACA. And, and and his canceling of DACA, but I, I feel like that's a that's a story that could that's taken the last six months. So after that, there's also the temporary protected status program that covered about three hundred thousand, maybe four hundred thousand people. Um, and he's he hasn't canceled that program, but he has taken countries that are protected off the list uh, summarily as they've come up, whereas. Previous administrations, Republicans and Democrats alike, just renewed those protections also summarily. And so he's basically changed the way. And then TPS is important because it's this very specific example of how he's changed the way that the administration interprets current immigration law. And the interpretation is almost always stricter, some would say harsher. You mentioned TPS, Temporary Protected Status. So let's learn a little bit more about that and, and what has been the law on the books related to uh, people who have fled certain disasters and what has changed. Well, so TPS started uh, in the 90s, basically. But the, 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 as we know it today, uh, the oldest designations are from the year 2000. What it does is if there's a country that has a natural or man-made disaster, uh, and, and there are people from that country in the United States who are either undocumented or about to lose their status, or, you know, could be tourists, or it could be they're undocumented. Um, they are allowed to stay in the United States and work in the United States until conditions get fixed. What, the, the difference between the way Trump, and, and the biggest example is uh, 200,000 and something Salvadorans um, 260,000 Salvadorans 
are in the country under TPS. Previous administrations said whenever the country in general is well enough to receive these 260,000, we'll talk about sending them back. The Trump administration has said when that disaster that originated the designation is, you know, has been passed, is, is, is fixed itself, then it's time to send them back. So Salvadorans, for instance, they're here because of a couple of earthquakes that happened in the late 90s. It's 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 arguable whether the 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 indirect consequences of the earthquake still cause uh, sort of low standards of living in El Salvador, but it's pretty much agreed upon that the direct consequences of of the earthquakes twenty years later, they're you know they they're in the past. Uh, haven't uh, the White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, also the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Ms. Nielsen, have both said that these longtime TPS recipients should be able to stay? Uh, why uh, the shift then and, and how the program has ended? Well, John, John Kelly is actually the key person here. Uh, as DHS Secretary, he's the one that introduced this new interpretation. And it was surprising in that NPR uh, interview, I think a couple of weeks ago, where he said they should be allowed to stay. His take on it has been from the beginning, if Congress doesn't like the laws that it's passed, then Congress should change those laws. But as as Professor Chang was saying earlier on, on your show, that these laws are kind of, they've been structured since 1965, sort of is in a mishmash of, uh, of, of agreements, uh, you know, so, sometimes the, this, uh, this emphasis on border security has been a trade-off point for protecting certain groups of people. And that's created sort of a Frankenstein of immigration laws that, that isn't really consistent in the principles that it's trying to uphold. Uh, you mentioned a border crossing. That does uh, take up a, a wealth of time and attention in terms of, of what uh, the administration and others say needs fixing. So one of the more recent announcements was uh, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, on the U.S.-Mexico border saying there's going to be now a zero-tolerance approach. Can you walk us through um, some of what led to that directive? Well, what led to it has been the, really the fight over over President Trump's proposed wall, and and this idea that the border is a dangerous place that you know uh, bad hombres, uh, to use that expression, come over the border, and and the need since Congress only appropriated 1.7 billion dollars extra for border security, or or if you want to call it border wall. Um, the, the need for the administration to do something to sort of follow through on that campaign promise. Uh, now, the, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. You can finish. The, the big change there is that by prosecuting everyone that, that crosses illegally, first of all, it's an overwhelming uh, task for, for DAs on the border. And second of all, there's that family separation issue where, yeah, somebody's accused of a criminal act, they you know, and they cross together as a family, they will be separated and sent to the sort of the detention centers that fit their age and gender status. Mm. And remind us uh, some of the the people that are trying to seek asylum. Again, uh, on the phone with me is Rafael Bernal, staff writer for The Hill Latino. Uh, there was also that recent uh, Twitter storm and lots of attention from the media with this uh, caravan of migrants uh, moving through, uh, hoping to get asylum in this country. 
Yeah, the, the, the caravan was a, was a strange case because it shows how immigration really ties into U.S. foreign policy, especially in Latin America. That caravan, they were mostly Hondurans. Um, many of them said they were fleeing. The president of Honduras, who recently got reelected, who's a U.S. ally, whose military is very close to John Kelly again. And, you know, it, it, the accusation that a lot of people make is that the United States is following policies that expel migrants from, from these countries, especially the Northern Triangle of Central America, and at the same time trying to not let them in. So there, there has to be a consistency. Otherwise, they're just putting hundreds of thousands of people in, in impossible situations. With that recent directive from, again, Attorney General Sessions that anyone crossing the border will be uh, prosecuted, uh, there's also the uh, the announcement that if there are children uh, with adults that they will be separated. Uh, there has been a lot of backlash about uh, that particular part of the announcement. Yeah, there, there has been. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's going back to the to prosecuting everybody who crosses illegally. So the illegal crossings really boil down to people who cross between designated ports of entry. You could also, if you trick a, a, an officer at a port of entry, that's also an illegal entry, but that happens less often, obviously. Um, so by prosecuting everybody who crosses between legal ports of entry or attempting to prosecute, because it's also very difficult to prove if somebody crossed illegally unless the officer sees them doing it, sees them in the act, really. Mm -hmm. um, but by prosecuting these people, families do get separated sort of, you know, w w without... There's no question that families will get separated because it turns into a criminal prosecution. So, let's say, the, the adults in the family unit will get sent to a jail while they're indicted or, you know, and while they, while they go through the criminal justice procedure. The children... It's it's unclear that whether they'll be put to into HHS, which is what usually happens with unaccompanied minors, or you know, I don't think there's been any talk about charging them as well. But even if they were charged as minors, the process would be different, and the end result is these families get separated. You mentioned HHS, that's Health and Human Services. They would be the, the agency with the jurisdiction to handle uh, migrant children uh, that are with their parents or parent or some adult uh, who tries to cross the border illegally. Yes. So usually what happens when there's either unaccompanied children or, or children get separated from their families because of criminal prosecutions or, or because of policy, they get handed over to Health and Human Services who then either puts them into into these child detention centers. That happened before with the Obama administration. They put them in some military bases because they just didn't have enough resources to find um, to find surrogate families for all for all of these kids. Um, and now there there was a report also a few weeks back that HHS and the Department of Defense are are looking at spaces on military bases. Mm -hmm. They haven't, as as far as we know, they haven't come to a conclusion whether they'll do that, but they, they need to find a place to house all these kids if that does come to happen. Because, again, it's very difficult to prove that somebody crossed the border illegally unless they, you see them crossing illegally. And, and, and illicit presence in the U.S. 
that's a whole other deal. And that one, that doesn't, that isn't necessarily, necessarily a crime. But this announcement coming from Sessions, is it a deterrent uh, to, again, uh, migrants coming up through Central America uh, who some of them are, are asylum seekers? Is this something that will make them reconsider or what they're leaving is worse than what they may be encountering? That's the big question that's been asked of, uh, of Sessions and of DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. Are, are they being informed? You know, is, is, there really, is there really a communications effort so far as I can, as far as I can tell, having talked to a few migrant leaders, including the caravan, they don't, they don't, um, you know, they, a lot of them are not legal experts. Obviously, that you know that you don't have Honduras as lawyers coming to the United States in droves. Um, and when when there is a credible fear, people will take bigger risks. So they'll they'll hear, you know, the, the way they'll hear it is. The Americans are becoming stricter now, so it, it might be a deterrent to some, but maybe not to others, or it might just drive up prices for for human traffickers, which is another another challenge that could happen and apparently has been happening. And Raphael, uh, what about? Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what kind of negotiations, if at all, are happening between U.S. and Mexico for Mexico to take some of these asylum seekers? Is that uh, does that have any legs, so to speak? Well, that's a, that's an interesting point because what what basically the United States and Mexico are negotiating is what's known as a safe third country agreement, where you, Mexico declares itself to be a, a safe third country. So any asylum seeker going through its territory that then that then crosses into the United States is basically bounced back into Mexico, say, telling telling the asylum seeker, "Hey, you've already reached a safe place. You know, you, you don't need to cross any more borders. These guys will take care of you." Now, Mexico's asylum and refugee system is not uh, not well funded, to to put it put it mildly. A couple of years back. It had about a million dollars per cal per fiscal year, uh, which is, you know, they had seven employees. Um, so it's 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 difficult. And I talked to a former administration official who said he didn't quite understand why Mexico was engaging in this in this negotiation because they have nothing to win from it, other than if it's part of a broader negotiation with the United States that includes NAFTA, other security agreements, sort of a, sort of a acquiescence to engage on every subject that the Trump administration comes up with. And, and the other thing is that in reality, for many of these Central Americans, Mexico is not a safe country. Mm. So it would be very hard to make the case to the, sort of, to the global community that yes, Mexico has Mexico can take you know fifty or sixty thousand Hondurans coming north. Um, it's it's it, it's a strange case. Uh, it, it's it's hard to say whether Mexico is negotiating this in in good faith. Uh, for the United States, the advantages are obvious. There's just an X number of of asylum seekers that if these negotiations are successful, the United States will not have to take care of. Rafael Bernal is reporter for The Hill Latino. Rafael, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Just ahead, we're going to get more reaction again to that Department of Justice announcement that promises to charge anyone crossing the border, regardless if they're seeking asylum. Now, do you think the U.S. asylum program should be overhauled? We'll get reaction from both sides of the debate and take your calls, too. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, frustration over the number of people crossing the southwest border into the U.S. has led to directives like the one Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced earlier this month. Sessions is using his authority to charge anyone caught illegally crossing into the U.S., even if they're trying to seek asylum. And we were wondering what laws govern how the U.S. handles asylees. Joining us now with some perspective is John Bauer, a clinical professor of law at UConn Law School, where he directs the Asylum and Human Rights Clinic. John, welcome to the show. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here, Lucy. So when we talk about asylum seekers, asylees, who are the people we're talking about? How are they different from refugees? Okay, so the United States has a refugee resettlement program that takes in people who have been driven away from their home countries because of persecution um, and are not in the United States. But we take a limited number of people through the resettlement program. Asylum is something that's available for anyone who makes it to the border or is inside the United States who can show that they have a well-founded fear of being persecuted or have been persecuted already in their home country because of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Um, So it's an obligation we have under international law and under our own laws to not send back people to a country where they would face persecution. And how how long have these laws been in existence? Well, the international treaty that required countries to not send back refugees to places where they'll be persecuted dates back to 1951. It was negotiated by the United States and other countries as a response to the Holocaust and uh, the shameful way in which Jewish refugees were sent back by the United States and other countries. Uh, and often perished as a result. Um, And um, the United States signed on to the treaty in 1968. And in 1980, the U.S. Refugee Act was passed, which set up our current system for asylum. Now, what is the process for an asylum seeker once they uh, come to the border or uh, put in a request that they're seeking asylum? Under the laws, what are they, what kind of process is required to follow? And how is that changing under what uh, Attorney General Sessions has announced? Well, it's already a very difficult process because um, the person seeking asylum has to convince an immigration judge or asylum officer that their story is true, that they genuinely face persecution, and that the persecution is on account of one of the limited reasons that are uh, a basis for asylum under U.S. law. Uh, people, since 1996, people who are, um, are seeking asylum at the border or are caught near the border shortly after they enter uh, have to go through additional hoops, and they are often detained um, for part or all of the process while they're seeking asylum. Um, They have to make it through an initial screening with an asylum officer um, shortly after they enter to convince an asylum officer that they have 
a legitimate claim, and if they don't make it through that initial screening, they're just quickly sent back to their home country in something called expedited removal. Um, so it is a very difficult process. Um, only about 39% of people who have a hearing in front of an immigration judge and are seeking asylum are actually granted asylum. Now, for another perspective on uh, this uh, question about uh, the asylum program and who the U.S. permits into uh, the country, uh, Mark Krikorian joins us by phone, executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. This is an organization that advocates for stricter immigration limits. Uh, Mark, welcome back to the show. Well, glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, so we were talking specifically about this new directive from uh, Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions. Uh, we're curious what your thoughts are on um, how the U.S. handles asylum seekers. Is the system uh, overburdened and is it misused? Uh, yes, clearly misused. And the um, real problem stems from the Obama administration's use of, or let me put it this way, a lax administration of the asylum rules and what what happened was that word got back to Central America that if you got into the United States and you said the words asylum that they would basically the United States would let you in uh, give you a basically a summons you know to appear at immigration court and then literally take you to the bus station where the Border Patrol itself arranged for your bus tickets to go to the join your relatives in the United States finishing the smuggling process for the smugglers, but at taxpayer cost or at the cost of the family members here. So the point is, word got back that saying the word that asylum was a magic word to get you into the U.S., you then didn't bother to go to the hearings, and nobody was going to look for you. And what that has done is create an expectation that you can either show up at a port of entry or sneak in and get away with it. And it's changing that expectation and breaking that cycle that um, the administration, Homeland Security, and the Justice Department are trying to do. So the program you're saying is too lax, a specific categories that people fit that when they say they're seeking asylum, such as membership in a particular group. Can you explain that? Well, I mean, let me just step back one. I think even putting, even people making the first, people shouldn't, most of them shouldn't even be making the first cut which is called, the technical term is a credible fear interview. Basically what it is, is are you even allowed to buy a ticket to the show to apply for asylum or not? That first step, that first interview, it seems to me everyone who comes through Mexico should fail that because Mexico is a signatory to the refugee treaties. Mexico has a ref, an asylum system that the UN refugee official in Mexico just this month said was adequate to deal with the number of people applying for asylum. Therefore, anyone who comes through Mexico doesn't apply for asylum and comes here instead is by definition no longer an asylum seeker because the international treaty specifically says that an illegal immigrant has to be considered for asylum, but only if the person comes directly from the country where they were being persecuted. You cross through Mexico, 
you just be, you're just a regular immigrant at that point. I want to get uh, John Bauer's perspective on what you're saying, uh, Mark. Again, he's clinical professor of law at UConn Law School, also directs the Asylum and Human Rights Clinic. Can you respond to what Mark is saying about uh, he doesn't even think that people coming up through uh, Mexico should even qualify to be asylees? Yeah, I, I think uh, much of what Mark said is both factually wrong and legally wrong. Um, in terms of the U.S. obligation, the U.S. has an obligation not to return someone to a place where they would face persecution. And under the U.S. asylum statute, if the person is presenting themselves at the border or is in the U.S., the question is, do you send them back to their country of nationality or uh, are they eligible for asylum in the United States? The fact that a person passed through another country on the way to this country does not make them ineligible for asylum. It's only if the person was firmly resettled in that country that they're disqualified from asylum. It is true that the United States can negotiate with other countries a safe third country agreement. One of the previous guests talked about that. We do not have such an agreement with Mexico. Um, So just sending people back to Mexico is not an option legally. And there are good reasons that people don't settle in Mexico. Uh, Central Americans traveling through Mexico are, are often preyed upon by violent gangs and drug cartels. Um, the The notion that um, people are coming because they've heard they get a free pass in the United States is ludicrous. When people are taken into custody by the Border Patrol, they're put in places that they call hialeras, ice boxes, um, because they're so cold while people are held for you know, um, a period of time before they can be sent to a detention center. They spend time in detention centers before they have an opportunity to see an asylum officer. Um, the fact that people are still coming reflects the desperation that they, uh, of the situation that they're fleeing from in Central America. Do you think this directive from um, A.G. Sessions, uh, John, is going to be an effective deterrent if, uh, again, U.S. officials and others are worried about this flow of migrants? I don't think it's going to be effective. Um, It has been the case for decades that the United States prosecutes many people for illegal entry. Um, In fact, uh, in 2016, half of the prosecutions in the federal courts were for illegal entry to the United States. What is new is the announcement that this will be routinely applied to asylum seekers, including families with children. Uh, it will produce hardship and suffering. Um, the, it will result in parents being separated from children. But the situations that people are fleeing are such life and death desperate situations that, that they'll still come. Um, and. You know, it, I, I think um, it, it's going to be no more. Well, it's just not going to be effective. Mark Krikorian is also with us, uh, yeah. executive director of the Center for Immigration uh, Studies. Uh, there's uh, lots of arguments about the legal basis of who should be permitted to get asylum or not. But uh, what is your take on what our country's uh, a moral obligation should be, Mark? The, uh, the moral obligation of our government is to preserve the, is to promote the interests of the American people. And Asylum represents a unique surrender of sovereignty by the American people or surrender of control over their own country. 
In other words, that a foreigner can come, break in illegally, and say, you still have to let me stay. We don't allow this in your own home, obviously, but as a country, we allow that. Therefore, it has to be confined. Well, let me put it this way. It has to have, the bar has to be set extremely high. Very few of the Central American illegal aliens actually get asylum. Um, something 20-something percent, generally speaking, of those from Central America, and that is only the ones who make it past that first cut. So almost none of these people actually qualify for asylum. The goal is to get into the country and be let go, the catch-and-release policy, which is still in place. And I know for a fact that people come because they have heard from their relatives they can get in because I sent a crew down to southern Texas a couple years ago when this really started, uh, one of whom has lived in Mexico and speaks Spanish fluently, and the Central American illegal immigrants being delivered to the bus station by the Border Patrol said that's why they came. Now, Mark, we, we see d- uh, different data points uh, um, from different organizations about uh, when we look at uh, the immigration system as a whole, if we're focusing in on the undocumented uh, population in this country, it's not uh, asylees uh, that are that making up uh, a, a, a big majority, but a lot of people who are overstaying their visas. Uh, why isn't there more attention on that part of the system being broken? Well, there is. It's just that that's not a border issue. That's people coming in legally and then not leaving when they're supposed to. Congress, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, required the development of an electronic check-in, check-out system for foreign visitors to make sure we knew if they left. That still hasn't been completed, and only now is the Homeland Security Department seriously Mm -hmm. starting to work on developing a system like that. Well, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, but John Bauer is in studio with us. Uh, Again, um, moving forward, what are some steps to deal with this flow, if that is a a legitimate concern uh, for uh, this country, John? Well, I mean, I think it's essential that we have a fair asylum system. And Uh, If, as Mark said, 20% of Central Americans who go to a hearing are being granted asylum, that is a significant number. Uh, There are people like a recent client of my clinic, uh, a young man who was an evangelical pastor preaching to gangs uh, who was threatened. Uh, His girlfriend was killed and he was chased by people with guns. So we're out of we'll time, have to leave it there, we'll but hopefully there. we'll re- revisit this conversation. This is where we live.